Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jacob Parnell, and I'm one of the ministers here. David, the heart of the king. We've been studying the life of King David, this Old Testament king. With, there's so much information in the scriptures about David. We see all of these different snapshots of his life, of his personality, of the heart that he has for the Lord. And when he gets it right, he gets it right. And when he gets it wrong, he gets it really wrong. And we're going to spend some time in a story today where David gets it really wrong. So you can open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Like I said, this is in the Old Testament. Uh, it's before Kings and Chronicles. It's after Judges and Deuteronomy and Genesis and all those uh, Torah books. But 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we're going to be camping out. Before we get there this morning, I want to begin with an image that I want to put in your mind. And this is something I'm going to be referring back to that hopefully will help this lesson hit home. Uh, in the form of a game that's called Pie Face. How many of you have ever played uh, a game called Pie Face? It's a Hasbro game. Evie knows what I'm talking about. You might be the only one, Evie, so you may have to educate the church this morning. Uh, it's a game where there's a, a face cut out, and you stick your face through the face hole, and then you turn this little crank, and depending on how many times you turn it, there's a spinner that tells you how many times to turn the crank, uh, you may or may not get a pie in your face from this mechanical arm that puts a pie in your face. This game's been around a long time. I found an old commercial of, for advertising this game. I want to share this with you. So check this out. This is Pie Face. Turn the handles, hear them click. You'll never know when you'll be hit. It's Pie Face. Ask your mom for some cream. Pilot high is the scream. Now you spin, watch the score. Never had such fun before. It's Pie Face, something else you can do. Play the game without the goof. It's Pie Face. Pie Face, the goofiest, bulliest suspense game. Just reset the mystery handle, load the sponge with water, or ask mom or dad to put on topping or foam. The spinner tells you the turns to take, but watch out, it's Pie Face. It's a game and it's new. Gets your face full of goo. It's Pie Face. With spinner, mask, and pie thrower. Fun for you and grown-ups, too. Pie Face from Hasbro. Okay. Pie Face. <laughs> uh, I have a copy of this game if you'd like to play it with me sometime. It's interesting. It's exciting. Evie's volunteering. Good. We'll, we'll, make, a, we'll make an arrangement. We'll, we'll plan a time to do that. Um, like I said, this is going to make sense a little bit later on in the message, but just for now, we will say that leadership, whether it's being the king of Israel, whether it's being a leader of a household, or just whatever leadership you may have in your life, it can be a messy thing. And that's what we're going to see in the life of David this morning. Let's go right to the scriptures and read this story together that you may have heard before. But it goes like this. In the spring... At the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. 
Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, her husband. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. Euphemism, by the way. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all of his master's servant and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he said to Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I? How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And then David said to him, stay here one more day. And tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. I didn't lose my place. I'm just wanting that to sink in a little bit. Put him out where the fighting is the fiercest so that he will be struck down and die. So, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah in a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And we're going to skip down to verse 25 here, after all that happened. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Okay, so this is our story. David and Bathsheba. You may have heard this story before. This story has been told a lot. It's been depicted a lot in classic works of art and in Bible story curriculum. Uh, these are one of those stories of David that I think we let slip through to our children's ministry. We'll tell them this stuff, maybe without all of the, the graphic details about what's going on. But David did not always make all the right choices. Sometimes when this story is told, Bathsheba is kind of made to be the person to blame the way that she's sometimes drawn, the way this sometimes story is sometimes told. It's, it's good King David out on the roof doing his thing, just staying in his house, and sees this woman, and she's alluring him. Maybe Bathsheba had some kind of agenda. Maybe this was her goal all along, to work her way up in the world. And there's even some, I found some images online of some of these, these uh, 
uh, ways that Bathsheba has been depicted here. I don't know if you can see this very well, but there's David up on the roof playing his harp, being a good king, and she's down there flashing some ankles just right outside the palace wall, trying to get his attention. David, do you see my outfit, my big old hat, and uh, whatever else is going on there? This is another image uh, of Bathsheba, kind of like, tilting her head towards where she thinks David is. Maybe he sees me bathing. Maybe this is my big opportunity. This is one from a film strip that she's flashing a little bit more back here in this, this picture, and it seems like she's, she's got something in mind. This, I don't know if you've seen this movie, David and Bathsheba. This is from 1951. It's this old film. I watched the trailer for this, and I kind of went, that is insane, because this, more than anything else that I found, has... But Bathsheba depicted as this, uh, what's the word? Seductress, harlot, what's another good word? Temptress, yeah, all those words are the words that I was trying to find. And she's laying there, and she's like, come to me, David. And they have this conversation about, like, this was meant to be, and this is of God. And I go, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. This is not what's happening in this story. I got one more image. This is, you know, David with a furry mustache and Bathsheba's kissing on his neck and just trying to make this relationship that was meant to be finally happen. Bathsheba was not a seductress. There are a couple of things that are wrong with that interpretation of this story and that way to see Bathsheba. One, it doesn't really reflect a cultural understanding of what was going on at the time. Specifically, it doesn't show and realize how much power David actually had as king over all of these people. In her situation, if the king looks at you and sees you and likes you and calls you to his bed, what choice did you have? No choice. She could not have said, no means no, David. She could not have raised a fuss about it on social media. She could not have called the police. David was the highest authority in the land, and he overpowered her, and he demanded that she have sex with him. That sounds to me like a definition of rape. I've heard this described as royal rape. And this was not the, David was not the only person to have thought of this. I don't believe that Bathsheba was asking for it just because her body was visible to a lustful man, although that's sometimes how this story is told and sometimes how it is depicted. This is also how some of our modern stories with similar details are told today. It seems kind of ridiculous to have to say it, and yet in our culture of victim shaming, I feel like it needs to be said. So I'm going to say it. People in power need to protect the vulnerable and not take advantage of them. And that's exactly what David does in this situation. He has power, he sees someone who's vulnerable, and he takes advantage. A second reason why we can't paint Bathsheba in this light, is because it doesn't really match Nathan's interpretation of the events that happened. And we'll read about this in a moment when we get to chapter 12 and uh, the prophet Nathan coming to David. But in the words of Nathan, Bathsheba is not a seductress. She is actually an innocent lamb. And David is the offender. He is the one who sins. He is the one to blame in this story. Let's look back at some of these details. Maybe we can figure out where David went wrong. It tells us that this was the time of year it was spring, and that was the time when kings would go out to war. But David, he's not out at war. Wasn't he a king? Yes. Wasn't spring the time when kings go out to war? Yes. So why isn't David out with the men fighting? Doesn't say. He's just hanging out, 
He's enjoying the comforts of his palace. He's playing hooky. He's bored. He's up on his roof, and he abuses his power to get the desirable fruit he sees that is pleasing to his eyes. Notice the verbs that are used in this story. All of the active verbs are David's actions, and they move him closer and closer to sin. David remains in Jerusalem, verb. He gets up from his bed. He walks out onto his roof. He sees the woman bathing. He asks about her. He sends for her, then he sleeps with her. He impregnates her. He sends for Uriah, her husband, to try to clean things up. He makes Uriah drunk. He writes Uriah's execution order. He sends Uriah to Joab to deliver the order. He kills Uriah, and then he brings Bathsheba into his house to be his wife. All David's actions, one step after another on a journey to sin, each one making the situation worse and worse and worse. And at the end of this chapter, we get the verdict of what God thinks about his actions. And what God thinks is the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Is anybody surprised by this verdict? Did you get to this verse and go like, really? We thought God would be like, David, that's okay. You're a king. You can do what you want. This is not a shocker in any sense. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Clearly, obviously, David made some huge mistakes. And I want to camp out here for just a little bit because this may seem like a no-brainer to church folk. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord, but it's also a key part of this text. And it's an important question that people who are trying to be faithful to the Lord ask ourselves. We ask ourselves this all the time. You kind of get this contrast when you talk to people who don't believe in God or who don't follow Jesus or there's a different set of standards and morals that maybe they live by. And you say like, oh, I'm doing this because I think it will please the Lord. Or I'm not doing this because I don't think it'll please the Lord. And they go like, well, I don't really have a Lord whose opinion I care about. So that's not a question that I ask. And the way we ask this question is kind of important because what I have found is that in the church, this is the big thing that we're trying to figure out when we make decisions as a congregation or as individual Christians. Does this thing please the Lord or does this not please the Lord? And in this story, David's sins, the rape, the adultery, the murder, these are pretty clear. You know, we get to verse 27 and we go like, yeah, God's not pleased with these things. We know that one. Those things are pretty obvious. But what happens is that a lot of the reasons that churches will split or Christians will part ways from fellowship with one another is because they have different interpretations. There are some things that they can't agree on, some less obvious things that one person says, this doesn't please the Lord. And the other person says, well, this may or may not. It may be something that's neutral. And if you've been around church long enough, you may be familiar with some of these things that keep people separated from being together as Christians. Things like whether or not women can speak in a worship service. Questions like is it okay to use musical instruments when you worship? Questions like should there be comments between the songs in our worship service? How should we structure our worship service? Is it okay for a preacher to tell a joke during a sermon? Is it okay for preachers to tell personal stories in the sermon, or should they just stick to the text? Is it okay 
way to show a pie face commercial during your message on a Sunday morning. How do we correctly interpret the Bible? These are still some of these issues. Uh, what is an appropriate sexual relationship between people? How do we distribute church funds? How and when do we baptize people? Who gets to take the Lord's Supper, and how often, and in what format? And on and on and on and on and on and on and on. You could come up with your own. These are just the ones that I thought up off the top of my head. Sometimes these things are unclear. And you may have heard some of these and go like, well, Jacob, you shouldn't have put that one in the gray area category, because it seems pretty clear to me that this is displeasing to the Lord. Or we have to do this because this is what God has asked for us. So it's a good question to ask. Does this please the Lord? Does it not? But the way that we ask it sometimes gets us in trouble. And I'm surprised sometimes how selective we can be with the things that we plant our flag on and the hills that we choose to die on when it comes to particular issues. Some person will come along and say, well, it seems pretty clear to me that God is not pleased when a woman passes a communion tray during a worship service or when a woman reads aloud from Scripture. And if this church starts doing that, I will never come back here. Those are things that people sometimes say. When I hear somebody say that, I've got, a, I've got two thoughts. One is, I wish it wasn't like that. I wish people wouldn't make ultimatums and say, like, it's got to be this way or else. And then I realize, wait, but I have my own lines. And I'm sure that if one of those lines was crossed, I would probably be in the same situation. But the other thought that I have is this is coming from a place of love for the Lord. It's coming from a place of faithfulness. It's coming from a place from a person who has asked this question over and over again. Does this thing please the Lord or does it displease the Lord? And I love that and I respect that. Just sometimes when we decide what it is that we're going to say, it's this or else. It's got to be this or I'm gone. We maybe have trouble prioritizing what those things should be and what they shouldn't. We often reserve our righteous indignation for trivial matters like the color of the carpet, the tempo of the songs, or whether or not we are comfortable on Sunday mornings. But maybe we should hold off. Maybe we should not worry about some of those minor things and Save that for the, the big stuff. I, there's an exercise that I came across a couple years ago, and I've done this exercise with other ministers, and I've led it uh, in some groups here at Tri-Valley a couple times. And I think it's a helpful exercise to kind of help us sort out what we ought to be doing as a church and how we can ask those questions. What pleases God? What doesn't please God? And it starts with a story. So the story, the little illustration story goes like this. Let's say you go to a restaurant, and you order a steak. And you tell your waiter, bring me a steak. I really want a steak. And the waiter comes back and says, here you go, and he brings you a plate of spaghetti. And you look at that and you go, uh, there's a mistake here. I asked for steak, and you brought me spaghetti. And the waiter says, oh, no, 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 there's no mistake. This spaghetti's awesome. You're going to love this. I brought this to you because I thought you'd really, really like it. And you go, hmm, well, maybe this spaghetti's great, uh, and I like spaghetti too, but I asked for steak, so why don't you get rid of the spaghetti, and make with the steak. That's, that's the situation that I would be in. The story kind of leads to this exercise that I want to share with you, but it, it, it's point out the fact that sometimes in church, sometimes in our efforts to please God, we bring God spaghetti when he's asked for a steak. Here's what I mean. So the exercise goes like this. There's two, you have a whiteboard or a piece of paper, and there's two columns. 
On this side, you have things that God commanded. He said, do these things. Things that Jesus just straight up said, like, this is important to me. I need you to do it as well. Now, on the other side, you make a list of all the things that are not commanded, but the churches still like to do. Things that we put our energies into, things that we make efforts to do, they're optional, they're traditions sometimes, but they're not necessarily what God asked for. So, as I go through this exercise, some of the ministers that I met with said, like, okay, what did God command? They go, like, boom, great commission. Go into the world, make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything that Jesus taught. Okay, cool. Forgive. You're going to make a hard case that, like, I don't need to forgive, or forgiveness is optional. It's pretty, pretty clear. God wants us to forgive. Uh, loving God and loving neighbor. We talked about that a lot this winter. Uh, people will say, oh, what about the one another's? Love one another. Pray for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Encourage one another's. Like 30 one another's in the New Testament. We ought to do those things. Cool. That's what God wants us to do. Teach the word. Pray. Everyone is exercising their gifts, being devoted to one another. Worship the unity of believers. If you go to Jesus' prayer before he was arrested in John chapter 17 and in that area. And again, you could come up with your own. You might add some things to this list and say, yeah, this is what God wants. Pretty clear. Cool. So we have this list. This is the stake. This is God saying, I want this. Then we start going through the process of, okay, so what, what are some traditions that we have? What are some ways that we do church and we put our energies and efforts into? Okay, worship styles. You know, whether you sing vocally, you know, with, with upbeat songs or quieter songs, old songs, new songs, you know, how you format your, your worship order. Having a church staff, that's something that's pretty common in churches these days, but there wasn't any church staff in the, the first century, and you don't see that as a biblical model. It's just a way to organize, and sometimes it works. Sometimes it's, you know, put more energy into it than we need to. This one, I'm not so sure. I think this one might be commanded, a 30 to 45-minute <laughs> weekly sermon. I think it's in there somewhere. Somebody find the verse that says, Jacob go talks a lot. Uh, yeah, and just, you know, youth programs, children's ministry, college ministry. This is something that, is, that we do, and it's optional, and it's traditional. However, when people come to a church, that's a lot of times what they're looking for. Does this have a place I can stick my kid? Is there a college group? Is there, are there people in my peer group? Just kind of like dividing people by age. That's a, that's a tradition that we do a lot in churches. Uh, I mentioned the order of worship, whether or not there's small groups, how to organize the small groups. Um, the church buildings is another thing, whether or not churches rent property, own property, meet in homes, whatever it is, how you, how you decide to gather as a church, uh, which Bible translation to use, whether or not you dress up for church. And again, this list could go on and on, and you could think of some things, and maybe you have this discussion over lunch, too. But the reason that this exercise was presented to me was because I did this with a group of church leaders, and they asked this question, like, how much of your time do you spend on things on the left side versus things on the right side? Because God said, I want, I gotta have these things in my church. I've gotta have these things as part of the kingdom. This is the stake, and we show up to God and go like, hey, look at this great spaghetti that I came up with. Look at this program that I designed. Look at, look at how I'm spending my time. It's, it's a way for us to examine, are we pouring more of our energy into things that are negotiable, the things that we could lose at the expense of some of these things. They point out that if somebody showed up to a church service on a Sunday morning, let's just take this church for example, we always have a sermon. Somebody always preaches, and a lot of times it's me. What would you do if there wasn't a sermon? You know, I'd be like, that's okay. You can do that sometimes, Jacob. We're, we're okay with that. But a lot of people would walk away saying it didn't feel like church. 
but there weren't any songs. It, ju- it just didn't feel like church. Why not? What if we just showed up and prayed for each other? What if we all just paired off and like made discipleship duos and said, like, we're going to spend an hour and 30 minutes just sharing life and talking about how we can serve Jesus better? That would be awesome. That would be steak if we did that on a Sunday morning. However, a lot of us, and myself included, would probably walk away going, didn't feel like church. And that's something that we just need to keep in mind. I don't, I don't have a solution or an application for this today, but it's something that I wanted to put on your mind as we're asking this question, how do we know what pleases God and what doesn't please God? This is a good kind of uh, reality check for us. It's a good question to ask, too. What pleases God and what doesn't? And we talked about this a little bit in our Sunday morning class. There's, there's ways to answer this question, like, That's one of the reasons we study the Bible is because we want to know what God says more than just what we'd like to do and then what we want God to go along with. That's why we spend time in Christian communities. That's why we we care about each other's opinions and we're involved in each other's lives is because if I say this is what I'm planning on doing uh, and then a group of people that are that I trust say like "Ah, maybe you shouldn't do that or maybe that's like David's actions moving you closer and closer to something that is displeasing to God. Maybe I should listen to them. Sometimes it takes two or three people, because the first person I'm like, ah, you don't know anything. I'm going to do this anyway. Somebody else is like, no, I think they're right. And I'm like, okay, now maybe I'm listening. These are good ways of discerning what God wants and what he doesn't want. That's why we submit ourselves to God first. Then we make a decision or an opinion on something rather than deciding, well, what is it that I want or what is it that I already like to do and then try to come up with reasons why God's either okay with it or God's indifferent about it. This may seem like a no-brainer too, but you'd be surprised at how often that's the discernment process rather than starting with what does God want in my life. This is an important question for us to ask. And just, we're kind of on a side road and I'm going to say one more thing and then we're going to come back to the text. But the last thing I'm going to say on the side road is that the leaders of this church have been engaged in a study on women's roles in public worship and in church leadership and we're planning on sharing the content of that study with the church this summer in a 9 a.m. class that I think everybody should attend. It's a class about biblical interpretation. It's a class about women in the Bible. It's a class about how we love one another in the church, even when we don't see eye to eye. You may go into it thinking, I know exactly what this is going to be, but you might be surprised. So I encourage you, put that on your summer calendar. June, July, Sunday mornings, 9 o'clock right here. It's going to be I think it's going to be a powerful time, but I also think it's going to be good for your brain. I think we're all going to learn a lot, learn to love each other. All right, back to the text. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's see what happens after David did these things that displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan's a prophet in Israel. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. And he raised it, and it grew up with him and his children, and it shared his food, drank from his cup, it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger 
against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And as, as, as if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives. I will give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. That's pretty harsh. And that happens. We're going to see some of that next week in our story about uh, Absalom and David. But what we can see from this, these verses is that sin has consequences. David thought that he could abuse his power and get away with these heinous actions, but he finds out that's not true. And this is something that happens all too often today with people in positions of power. They do the same thing that David did. They go through those actions. They, they, their, their verbs are verbs that displease the Lord. They take, they send for, they sleep with. They cover up, they hide, they bury, they cover their tracks, they deny, they spin, they justify. And you hear story after story of this going on, and you think, wouldn't it be refreshing if somebody who did something wrong or a, a public figure that they dug up some dirt on just, just said, yeah, I did it. It's true. And I'm sorry. And it was wrong. I think that would be refreshing if we heard that more often. And I'm not just talking about celebrities and politicians and the people on the television, but I'm talking about church leaders and employers, parents, ministers, spouses to one another. Just admit it. Just say, yeah. I went the wrong way. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done it. David is kind of an interesting character. We've been studying him for the past few weeks, and we've seen some of these great ways that he trusted in God, the great ways that he upheld the law of the Lord and told the people, this is important. Let's, let's do what pleases God. And then we see a story like this, and we go, why is this guy even in the Bible? Why do we have these stories? Why should we listen to anything he has to say or care about his example? I think the reason we're going to see here shortly. David did a lot of things wrong, but the thing that he did right was he received the indictment that God gave him through Nathan the prophet. He didn't have Nathan killed. He didn't run away. He didn't deny it. He didn't justify it. He didn't cover it. He tried to cover it up. It didn't really work out. But when the finger was pointed at him and the voice of the Lord said, you have done something displeasing. This is what David says. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Simple as that. I think that this is the valuable redeeming part of this story. 
Because like I said, David had all the power of the kingdom. Other kings would have taken a prophet like Nathan and said, you can't talk to me like this. You can't call me out in front of everybody. Take him out and kill him. He's done. They would have been within their rights to do that. They wouldn't have even acknowledged that there was any other power or authority higher than their own. And this, it doesn't take being a king to do this. We can see from our own lives that you're king of your own kingdom. You can very quickly go from like, oh, yeah, 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 I care about what God wants, to like, oh, no, 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 no. I do what I want, and I'm within my rights to do that. But that's not what David does. That's why we need to listen to this story. David admits, and he submits, and he acknowledges his sin, submits himself to God's rebuke and punishment. And this is confirmed by what Paul says about David in Acts chapter 13. He says, after God made David king, God said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. That's not to say that what David, that everything David does is what God wants him to do. It's pretty clear from this story that that's not true. But David will do the things that the Lord asks, and he will humble himself before the Lord. He submits himself to the ways of the Lord. Even though he has all the power in the land, he is still going to honor God most high, the maker of heaven and earth. And this is where I want your attention. Because this is our story too. This is where we are at. We, not everything we do is what God wants us to do. But we are trying to do all of the things that God does want us to do. We are trying to find out what pleases God and what displeases God and then live our lives accordingly. One of the reasons that we gather here is, like I said, to listen for a word from the Lord to present our lives before God and say, God, is this good? Am I on the right track? Have I done anything offensive? Do I need to course correct in any way? We ask, along with David, in the words of Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and then leave me, lead me in the way everlasting. This is a good exercise. This is a good practice for believers. Whenever we read scripture or share our lives with other Christians or ask for prayer requests or even when we gather in this room on Sunday morning, we put our face in the face hole. Remember the pie face game? If you're playing pie face, you're not going to get any cream on your face if you don't stick your face in the face hole. Go get that game and play it. You're going to get some of the people going like, yeah, this is going to be fun. Some of the people going like, ah, We do that sometimes as believers. But we need to stick our face in the face hole. Say, God, I'm ready. Whatever you need to do, rebuke me if necessary. Correct me. Give me encouragement. Give me strength to continue on. We sit in these red chairs each week. We put ourselves in the path of God's will. And we say, Lord, it matters to me whether or not you're pleased. And I hope that you are. And I really, really hope to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. And the good news, this is the gospel part, the good news of Jesus Christ for us is captured in the very next verse. David said, I've sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replied, the Lord has taken your sin away. You are not going to die. That's the good news. That's the thing that makes us not afraid of God. We don't stick our face in the face hole expecting to get our eye poked out. I mean, in the pie face game, it's whipped cream, right? You get pie in the face, you go, okay, all right. And you move on. 
Yes, there are consequences for sin, and David's going to find that out, and we will find that out too if we don't take this seriously. But God's judgment is one that refines and rebuilds and remakes. It's one that is trustworthy, and it's done with love and care. In the words of the Hebrew preacher, Since, therefore, we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne with confidence, so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's a good word for you guys this morning. I hope that this church is a church that cares about pleasing the Lord, a group of Christians that don't take sin lightly. I pray that we don't cover up the things that we do wrong or try to turn them around and blame others for our willful misdeeds. And I also pray that we're not a church that takes advantage of the grace that we know we have in Christ and say, ah, we can keep on sinning because there's forgiveness upon forgiveness. Don't do that. By no means. I pray that we are a church that gives God steak and not spaghetti and that knows how much God loves us and that we can approach the throne with confidence because of Jesus Christ. Psalm 51 is what I want to send you guys away with. According to my Bible, this is the psalm that David wrote after he had sinned with Bathsheba, probably after he was exposed for sinning with Bathsheba. And his concern was whether or not God was pleased with him. That's why we still listen to David and his heart that sought the Lord. I'm going to read this psalm for you, and I also want to encourage you to read it each day this week. To take it into your week, read Psalm 51, and by the end of this coming week, I want you to write a response prayer to God. And if you'd like to share it with the congregation, you can post it back in the foyer. The psalm goes like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. And you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, and yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit, a broken, contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is so relatable. This is, this is what we want to pray. Forgive us of our sins, God. Don't remember the things that we did that are wrong, but 
cleanse us and make us clean. And praise God, he does that through Jesus Christ. I want to invite the praise team to come back up here and uh, lead us in these last couple songs. I want to invite anybody who has heard the word this morning and would like to respond to it. If there's something in your life that makes you go, man, I'm on the wrong path. I'm doing something that's displeasing to God. Know that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. For all of us who have said yes to Jesus, we're trying to course correct. We're trying to sit in these chairs and put our face in the face hole and say, Lord, give me whatever it is you need me to take away. I pray that we have the courage and through the power of the Spirit to transform our lives for Christ. If I can talk to you more about what that looks like and what following Jesus means and the, the, the joys of the forgiveness in Christ, then I'm going to be out in the foyer. Come and talk to me. Let's stand and worship together.